0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As the Omicron wave continues to recede and the country looks towards what we all hope is the post-pandemic era, discussions have begun about how best to look at how the state dealt with the crisis, what worked, what didn't, and what lessons should be learned for the future. But Ireland's experiences of public inquiries have not been particularly happy in the past. So how might we avoid falling into the same traps again? And is there an urgency about getting the process underway while events are still fresh in people's minds? With me to discuss this are columnist Fintan O'Toole and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff, who I should mention is co-author of an impending book about Ireland during the pandemic. Hi, Jack. Hi, Fintan.
1: Hi, Hugh. Good morning. Um...
0: Jack, I should go to you first because I should mention that you've got a book uh, in the you pipeline on this that. subject. It's very important yes. to mention
2: that. <laughs> Feel free to <laughs> mention it as, of as often as you possibly can.
0: So that's coming coming out in about um, two months' time, I gather, and it's about the political handling of
2: the pandemic itself. Yeah, so myself and, and Hugh O'Connell and our colleague from the Irish Independent have spent the guts of. The last kind of six, seven, eight months pulling together um, this uh, this book, Pandemonium, um, the slug line for which is power, politics and the pandemic. And I suppose it, it's looking at, you know, how the state responded, really, how the political system responded, uh, how the kind of different uh, power dynamics and power relationships changed and shifted over time, um, and how those played into um, what was an extraordinary period of mobilisation of, mobilization, of nearly every aspect of the state's resources and you know the likes the likes of which can only really be compared to i think a state of war um and you know hopefully we'll never see the like of it again but i think it is likely that we will confront pathogens again so part of it um part of what the book i suppose will try to do is establish what we did what we did well what we didn't do uh, what worked and what didn't Um, and i suppose after after that after we've done that the government will come along and the state itself will come along and perhaps try and establish what it did well and what it would not like to repeat.
0: Yeah because it strikes me when thinking about this I mean I think I think we will come to a conclusion well I don't want to prejudge it but that, that you know that there is definitely need uh, for an inquiry and we can discuss what its scope might be. But some of this work doesn't have to be done by the state. And in a way, you're doing some of that work in, in in this book, certainly some of the initial groundwork, although I'm sure there are elements of things that you weren't able to get access to that that the public do need to know about how decisions were made. But just I suppose at the outset here, your overview of the entire experience from the point of view of how Ireland as a society and a state handled it. Um, are are there things that jump out at you with things that we need to we need to interrogate in order to learn lessons for the future?
2: Um yes, where to start uh the My main takeaway I suppose is that you get one shot to confront a novel uh threat like this in the manner that we did. I think that our response was underpinned by uh dramatic intervention uh both in terms of you know the fiscal response and the political response, which in turn was enabled by um high degree of social cohesion and buy-in to the public health restrictions that were put in place, um, which itself in turn was probably driven by uh, a large degree of, of fear. And centred around this policy of of lockdown and uh, we commissioned a piece of research for the book um, which looked at just how stringent our lockdowns were. There's this kind of truism that we had the most restrictive measures um, in in Europe and that's not quite accurate but we certainly had among the most and I think for 81% of the time uh, from March of 2020 to December of 2021 we uh, had restrictions that were more onerous than the median in Europe. So we had the kind of centrepiece of the policy response, which was lockdown. And I don't think that it's possible to confront um, a threat again using something as blunt as lockdown. Uh, I think that the costs are too high, um, you know, in terms of, you know, interruption to education for kids, for example, or if you look at any other kind of policy area, let's take something that the government announced just this week, which is the retrofitting programme. You look at the backlogs that were built up uh, through that program, um, the investment in households that need retrofitting who are suffering from fuel poverty uh, grew massively over the period of covid so i don 't think that the state can organize itself to to kind of uh, waylay the rest of what it does um, in response to something that might come down the tracks again so that 's the key thing i think is is thinking more closely about how we responded about how we might respond again in the future to something like this without reaching for such a blunt policy uh, intervention as lockdown, which was justified on its own terms and justified in terms of the scale of challenge that was facing us and the risk of sheer human death. But I don't think will be justified again for a second time. And I don't think we could rely on, again, the same extent of social cohesion and public buy-in that underpinned it all.
0: Well, I mean, that's all very interesting, Fintan. And maybe we'll come in a, in a moment or in a little while to some of the, the concrete issues that we know were most salient during the lockdown. I think particularly of the, um, of the some disastrous decisions made in relation to nursing homes in the, in the early months. And obviously there are some, you know, there, there are questions about PPE procurement, um, at, at a time of very heightened, heightened danger. I mean, those things in a way are, um, are more are more concrete. But this broader question of Ireland having been a country that, that relied more on lockdown and longer lockdowns than other countries, that seems to be a more difficult one to get our head around. Because, I mean, we, I suppose we have to presume that the next crisis that comes is not going to be exactly the same crisis. So we have to draw a more abstract lesson about the way Ireland the way Ireland, uh, positions itself in response to things than just saying we won't lock down as longer th- the next time.
1: We certainly do, yeah. You know, um because of course we don't, we don't. I mean, as Jack says, we don't know what the next time will be, right? So you know, maybe lockdowns have to be worse. You know, we're 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 in we're in a situation where um, emergency events are becoming normal. You know, for for all sorts of reasons, climate related reasons particularly. Uh, so what we need in terms of an inquiry release is, is exactly that: to stand back and think. How do we do this stuff, rather than simply? Um, you know, what precise things did we do right and wrong? We do need to do the latter, certainly, but there's a bigger question really, which is about what is the state's structure for responding to deep emergencies like this? Um, let's remember that the coming into this crisis, the state had a structure. It had spent a couple of years putting it in place. It was full of, you know, consultations and everybody had signed up to it. Leo Veradker as Taoiseach was the Taoiseach who brought it in. And then it was immediately dumped, you know, immediately dumped when the pandemic came. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and this was, uh, you know, that crisis would be dealt with by the National Emergency Coordinating, Co- 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 Coordination Committee. Um, and this a whole system that was set up and everybody was kind of trained in the system and then it was just kind of dumped. And we've never really had an explanation as to why that would be the case. Uh, and maybe that was right, maybe it was wrong. But one of the things we need to find out is, like, what was the thought process? You know, how were how, how things constructed such that the first thing we did was throw out what we thought was the emergency management process, right? I think the second thing we really have to think about in terms of health emergencies is uh, accountability, right? So so we gave enormous power to NFET and, and particularly to the chief medical officer, Tony Hullihan. I think it's probably fair to say that most citizens feel hugely grateful to those people, right, for for the incredible effort they put in, you know, for, for, for taking on this burden. Um I I think we're very fortunate in that we've had no indication of any kind of corruption or, or, or bad faith on the part of any of those people. You know, they were they, they behaved so far as we know, impeccably, with, with, you know, a sense of the public interest as they saw it. But in any situation, you know, if a state hands over um, huge amounts of decision-making capacity, and let's be honest, it was decision-making, it wasn't just advice. The state hands that over to people who are not elected and for whom there is no real mechanism of accountability you're going to get problems. right? It doesn't matter how wonderful the people are. They're human beings. There's going to be an element of groupthink. There's going to be an element of, 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 of just what they narrowly focus on. So, for example, we saw very, very immediately with NFET that it was hospital-focused. Right? These were people who were coming from the hospital system, by and large. That's what they were thinking about in terms of health. So all the focus was on hospitals and making sure that the hospital system didn't collapse. And the tragic consequence of that was, was that, that you know, fact, didn't discuss nursing homes for ages, didn't even talk about them, you know. And, and, and that tragedy was allowed to unfold because you didn't really have a mechanism for what should have been happening which was governments coming in and saying hold on a minute here we've got we've got a huge problem with nursing homes let's let's focus on that you know so so it's it's not just the concrete things although i think there's a lot of concrete things to talk about it's it's what are the democratic accountable flexible fast moving kinds of mechanisms that we need for coping with Potentially existential crisis.
0: Yeah, I mean that's very. Those are both very interesting points. They're inter interlinked, Jack. It, it strikes me that if you get to the know-buff, maybe you did get an answer in your book for this. You know of why didn't they use the existing emergency mechanism? I suspect the answer would be because it was an emergency, um, which is obviously not very, <laughs> but, <laughs> a very very satisfactory. But the other thing has answer. emergency in its title. I know, so. I know. But 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 the other thing that strikes me is, I a few months ago we had um, uh, the writer and historian Neil Ferguson on on the podcast who who has written a book about disasters called Doom, including some stuff about the pandemic. And one of his critiques, and he comes from a particular political perspective, um, was that uh, the the country in the world that was supposed to be best prepared for these kinds of things was the United States. Now, we know there were particular problems there, um, particularly at the time, but also the institutional structures that were supposed to be so developed uh, and uh, so able to cope with these emergencies really coped extremely badly, the Centers for Disease Control's approach to testing kind of put America behind the eight ball before they'd even, even started on things. They were too rigid, they were too bureaucratic. Um, and Ferguson's argument is that these kinds of plans are put together by bureaucracies to justify their existence. But when they collide into harsh reality, they very often are not fit for purpose and you might be better off being more flexible and you know bring it all back into government. And I wonder, in your opinion, do you think that's that's what happened here?
2: Yes, broadly speaking, I do. Um so the the, the the group that Finton referred to um is one of these things that it's kind of great on paper and then as you say, reality emerges and it's much more shocking and disorientating. Uh, and probably more of a kind of corporeal threat and a threat to life than people previously imagined, um, because I would say when they were sitting down to think of what the NECG could do, and, and you know they they threw pandemic response in there, they were probably thinking about pandemics like SARS or MERS, or um, you know some of the, some of these other diseases that you know were looked like they might be a big problem, but then kind of fizzled out because they were either too deadly or you know it didn't make the, the 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 leap across between people to, from a transmissibility point of view uh, to effectively, so I think that there was a kind of sense within um public administration generally including the Irish public administration that you know pandemics were something that were threats that never really crystallized you know and then when this did and, and it came at such a pace and was so shocking um it the, the the idea that it would be confronted with some kind of happy uh, you know flat pack approach that um that 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 neatly fit into the threat that was being faced quickly evaporated but i think that's that's of secondary importance what's of more primary importance is the kind of political economy that existed around the Irish system at the time and the the, the model of decision-making that emerged. And I don't think that we can really get away from the fact that we were just coming out of an election at the time, that we had a caretaker government in place. Um, and, you know, in, in that situation... Um, we we were faced with this kind of novel threat. And there was a massive centralisation of power, uh, not even into just the Department of Health, I think into the Department of the Taoiseach and the very top people at the Department of the Taoiseach, Martin Fraser, the Secretary-General of the Government and, and his team around him, the very top politicians and the very top of the HSE and also the Nefit structure that was, that was just set up then. So I think that, you know, the fact that that emerged and emerged so quickly didn't sit very well with this pre-existing idea, which I think is actually run under the auspices of the Department of Housing, um, because they had to move. They felt they had to move so very quickly um, and organise things to just the one end point. Um, that, that you know they didn't have time. Effectively, I think was the view uh, to to be messing around with these external structures or these pre-existing structures. You know, it had to be done. It had to be done now, and it had to be done with this almost kind of diktat authority that can only really flow from from the very highest offices in the land. You know, um, and that's why I think we ended up with this. Mod- Model. And also, I think one of the most important things that emerged at the very start was uh, the degree to which we were in lockstep with our public health advice. It was absolutely one and the same. Now, the public health advice was flawed in its own way in that it probably didn't. Uh, grasp the seriousness of the threat. I mean in the middle of of February we were still telling ourselves we'd have little outbreaks of the disease here and there but largely it was it was probably going to be controlled and controllable whereas we know in retrospect that the disease was already in the country and spreading in a fashion that was undetected by our um by our our, our systems of public health surveillance. So while the public health advice was flawed there was this kind of synchronicity between the political system in the early stage and the public health advice they moved very much in lockstep and that's kind of one of the one of the, the the determining factors of the early stages of the response how that changed over time and the degree of buyers buyers regret that evolved within government over the power and the primacy that was given to Neffish and to Tony Holland is another element that that unfolded over time um and is 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 why this is such a, an interesting and fascinating study in kind of the power dynamics of, of policy formulation under you know totally unprecedented and unimaginable pressures
0: just in relation to to that fintan and then to what uh, happened as a consequence with the nursing homes. I mean, clearly because of the sort of the the particular political circumstances which Jack describes there, we ended up with this sort of technocratic uh, government essentially for for three or four months at the outset and probably the scariest point of the whole crisis when we we knew so little about the disease and 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 how to cope with it, but. One of the things about these, our public inquiry is one presumes there will be similar public inquiries taking place in, in countries all over the world. And there is surely some, uh, some knowledge and some wisdom to be derived from those parallel processes. So while we can point at the preeminence of the medical establishment in the decisions that led to the disasters that happened in our nursing homes, exactly the same thing happened in a range of other countries, um, which have Somewhat different systems, so it, it wasn't something that was necessarily particular or peculiar to Ireland, uh, although it did perhaps reflect the, you know the both the power, the way in which decisions were made and the way in which voices at the table in different countries were heard and other ones weren't. It's not not peculiar to us.
1: I think that's absolutely true, um, and, and in fact, I would say one of the one of the great weaknesses of our system. All the way through the pandemic was the refusal to actually learn from what was happening anywhere else. It was as if there was an Irish pandemic, you know, that that that, that the virus was somehow, you know, hitting us, and we, we we saw it through a framework of 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 you know Irish policymaking and and Irish society. Um, I mean, the underlying, and I don't think it's too strong a word to say, it, but a kind of unconscious racism, you know which said, well, we've nothing to learn from the East, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, you know, and it wasn't even nothing to learn. It was that, you know, the stuff they're doing in in China, Vietnam, Taiwan. Um, well, yeah, yeah, you know, Eastern people would put up with that, but we, we really wouldn't. You know, we, we're, we're different somehow. We wouldn't wear masks. We, we wouldn't endure lockdowns, you know. And that was all. That's nineteenth century Orientalism. I mean, it's pure kind of you know the 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 Orient. You know, the Oriental people are different, and they're kind of submissive and subservient, and they'll put up with this stuff. There was a lot of that kind of nonsense, you know. And in different ways, it continued, right? Which is just refusing to see this as precisely, as you say, as an international, global pandemic. That's what a pandemic means, isn't it? <laughs> you know? And uh, so, so yes, we don't, we shouldn't repeat that, right? By 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 um, you know now trying to think about it as the irish pandemic and what what went wrong and what didn't the the underlying uh, so like so some of the lessons here are not mysterious right and uh, um but we we have had uh, I, I don't want to be tasteless in using a kind of parallel but like that if you think about the great famine for example that's the you know the, the biggest catastrophe that ireland's ever experienced what does that tell us, right? What it tells us, is what all famines tell us, is that the people who get most affected and who die are in these crises are the weak, are the people who don't have a voice, and the people who don't have political power, right? That's, that's why, you know, I mean, if, if the Irish famine had been happening in London, you know, responses would have been very, very different. Um, if it had been happening even in different parts of Ireland, you know, it, hap- it happened in the parts of Ireland where you had huge Vulnerable Irish-speaking populations who who just didn't have political power, and that's true of famines all over the world. You know that's what's repeated, right? It's not about lack of food; it's about lack of power. And so, what, what was true of Ireland was true of a lot of other societies, right? Which is that uh, if you segregate older people from society, you deprive them of a political voice. You know they're out of sight, out of mind. Turned out to be not just a cliche in this crisis, but a deadly one. You know, one, one that actually was completely true. So you had people screaming about what was going on in the nursing homes. It wasn't like that it was unknown. It was just, as you said, that the people who were being most affected just didn't have any kind of purchase on the public imagination and on the political system right? until it was very, very late in the day. So the underlying thing we have to think about in relation to this is 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 how we structure um, social care, you know. Uh, like Just a very simple thing. We, we, we know from study after study after study will tell you that the vast majority of older people want to be kept in their own communities and, and preferably in their own homes, right? We know that there's ways of doing this and we just don't do it, right? It, it, the institutional... And economic logic is all about sort of segregating people and putting them into off water, off and kind of private businesses. Basically, they become a resource for private businesses. We, we shouldn't be doing it that way, you know. There are some people who who need quasi institutional care. Most people don't, you know. And 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 so thinking about how we how we how we do care, you know, is is absolutely crucial. It does anything is going to be learned from this, and and and. You know the need to do it very differently is is very obvious. I think.
0: So that brings me to a a broader question, which our broader concern on my part, uh, Jack, which is that this pandemic was one of the biggest events in my life. It was one of the biggest events in the history of the state. There's an awful lot you could talk about and an awful lot of lessons you could learn. And the single biggest tragedy within it was what happened in the nursing homes, it seems to me, and that's true. But it also had hugely significant impact in the way we live, on the way we work, on the way our cities are shaped, on the way our transport infrastructure works. And are those things that can or should be brought into a review or an inquiry, or I think Michael Martin preferred the word evaluation, which seems maybe a little bit too gentle. Um, or, or will that just get too diffuse? And do we just need to drill down and focus on half a dozen, you know, important, tangible things?
2: Uh, there's a couple of things that strike me. I mean, you say that it was um, a chance, I suppose, for us to to consider wider questions of the way in which we live and you know I think that that's true uh, I think that it's it's pretty doubtful as to whether we will extract any of those lessons and put them into practice um I think that you know other than an approach to hybrid working which seems to be pretty deeply embedded which is a big thing in and of itself I think that you know the opportunity presented by the pandemic terrible all as it was for kind of gross reformation of how we do uh, service provision or, you know, public policy formation or anything like that. I don't see any evidence of that being grasped. Um, Like, take, for example, the Leaving Search. You know, um, the Leaving Search was, uh, it became a a weird shadow version of itself, which pleased no one for a couple of years. Um, And I think that in the round, it's probably better that it's going back to uh, the, the, the old... Uh, normal than staying in the kind of hyper model that existed, but it was also a big opportunity for reform. You know, I don't think anyone thinks that the Leaving Cert is an optimal um, is an optimal way of of evaluating uh, how people do in school and filtering them through into university. and And it seems to me that the opportunity for substantial reform seems to have passed us by. And I think that there's there's a wider risk uh, of that happening across many different spheres of life. Uh, like it looked for a time. That uh, the the kind of increasing urbanisation of the state uh, and the the concentration of that urbanisation largely within the capital might be offset by remote working and people moving to to remote hubs or regional cities. Again, that looks to have turned 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 turtle pretty quickly after after the the. "Quote unquote" end of the pandemic, um, you know, we see even this morning that uh, property prices are, are rampant again in uh, the cities and, and and receding in in the in the regions. Um, so I think that we may look back, and, and when it comes to that kind of broader structural piece of changing how we live our lives, I think that we may look at it as a missed opportunity, and uh, potentially we won't have those conversations as well because the pandemic was so traumatic for so many people. I think that people kind of. They don't now that it seems to be in abeyance. They don't want to kind of engage with it. I think that there's certainly going to be going to be a period of a few months where, if the disease from a kind of epidemiological perspective doesn't force itself back to the the, the 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 center of the discourse, we just won't think about it. We just won't talk about it because it was such an unpleasant time. And maybe only in a few months, or even in a, in a year or more, we'll. we'll Try and kind of grapple with what it meant and extract lessons from it. And I think that there's there, and I think that that's actually to bring it full circle to where we started to talk about you know a public inquiry or the political response or the state response to what we learned. And I think that the government is very much leaning into that at the moment. You know, they know that there's this kind of period of abeyance or period of, of hiatus, and they don't seem to be in a particular rush to do anything in terms of a commission of inquiry or, or an Oireachtas committee or an expert group. They're, they're letting it they're letting it breathe, for want of a better word. Um, and talking to even people across government this morning, they're very much kind of slow playing it and saying, you know, we're only two weeks out from the lifting of restrictions. Um, the pandemic state, as designated by the WHO, still exists both in Ireland and around the world. So perhaps now is, is not the time. There's also a fear, I think, of, you know, this process becoming overly politicized. And I think they look back to the uh, post-financial crash uh, reckoning um, and the most visible form that that took, which was the banking inquiry that ran from 2015 and into 2016, I think, uh, maybe 2014 and 2015. Either way, it wasn't seen to, to do a very good job. It became kind of really trammeled by process, very legalistic and very politicized as well, and also had this element of kind of show trial to it. Uh, so I think that there's a real eagerness to avoid doing that again. I think that that eagerness is partially supported by the fact that, you know, people don't necessarily fit neatly into the category of goodies and baddies after this disaster, after this crisis in the way they did after the financial crisis. I mean, after the financial crisis, we were demonstrably one of the worst performers in the world. We had a cast of regulators and bankers and politicians who had been objectively asleep at the wheel. After this crisis, we seem to have come out kind of middle of the pack, both in terms of absolute deaths and excess deaths. There were definitely weaknesses in how we constructed our our set of pandemic policies and managed all those power relationships and all the rest of it. But like, you know, was it this kind of conflagration that existed in Brazil or the United States or the United Kingdom? I don't think so. So they're trying to square all that and also trying to like head off the very real political risk that does exist to this government, um, considering parts of which have been in in power for the entirety of the pandemic. Because even though, you know, we didn't have a disastrous pandemic, there are real questions for them to answer. The nursing home is one. particularly how the nursing homes issue happened in March, April and May of 2020 – and then, after we knew what, what COVID could do, happened again in January and February of 2021, with a, I think an equal, if not greater, death toll attached to it. And um, an associated question, which this government has to face and may be uncomfortable for it, is the set of decisions that it took around Christmas 2020, allowing the degree of social mixing, um, which led to the the explosion in cases and transmission, which in turn led to that disastrous third wave, which was in many ways, in fact, in almost every way, worse than the first. the first Wave. So the fact that we ended up with a worse iteration faced by the same virus, uh, albeit containing a kind of element of, of one variant of the virus in the third wave, the fact that that happened again knowing what we knew at that stage, I think, is a politically problematic uh, question for the government. So it's perhaps no no surprise that they want to kick it to touch for a little while and see where the chips fall and see what the kind of optimum political uh, mode for addressing the history of the pandemic is for them. So is there a way of doing this,
0: Finton, that that is better than some of the previous inquiries to which Jack referred there, where you don't have a situation where everybody lawyers up and where you're going to the High Court every every couple of weeks and all that kind of stuff, where you can kind of set the ground rules at the outset to make it clear that you're not looking for heads and it's not a political showboating exercise, and that it is actually it, it is we're looking we're seeking to educate ourselves about our mistakes in order not to make them in the future, and that's it. Is there a way of doing that within our system? Because I haven't seen it previously.
1: Well oddly, perhaps, the the very weakness of our system of public inquiries might be a benefit in this regard, which is that, I mean, almost every other democracy, right, has has serious businesses of parliamentary inquiries, right? We don't have them. Why? Because the, the legal system decided to, frankly, to monopolize the power of inquiry, right? It's, the legal system has made sure that you have to lawyer up, you know, and, and that, that the whole thing is conducted through lawyers, which makes it then incredibly expensive, incredibly slow, and incredibly adversarial. Um, our system is one in which the, 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 the courts have essentially nobbled parliamentary inquiry. Right? Cannot find any um, findings that are adverse to any individual. Right, <laughs> you know? However, perhaps that might not be such an issue with this right because as you said this is not about looking for heads right there, there is no scandal here as such right there's no sense so far as we know right that there was any malign intent or action on the part of individuals which which led to this crisis or the bad handling of the crisis right so far as we know everybody was acting in good faith right and that that then means that we don't need an inquiry which says, why did X, you know, do or fail to do Y? What, what we need is an inquiry which actually just establishes a kind of narrative of what happened, you know, and why, and allows those individuals, actually, to to tell their stories in public. Um, you, you, you know, we, we, we know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Jack book will contain a lot more of this, but like we know, for example, that members of NFET have a lot to say themselves about how ridiculous the situation was that they were left in, where they were making the decisions. You know, some of them have gone on record saying this, you know, that this was ludicrous, you know, um, that this power that they were given was just completely wrong we need to hear that in a sort of more structured, open way. There needs to be a process in which a sort of narrative can be established, right? Like just simple things like, like wh- wh- why masks were bad? Like what, 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 what was the thinking there, <laughs> you know? How, how did we get to, into a situation whereby the Enfat was actively working against masks even on public transport at a point where the, the poor, unfortunate bus workers, for example, were pleading, were saying, like, we're, we're being left here to get covid we're just being left out there as sacrificial lambs could you not ask people or you know t- tell people they have to wear masks on public transport no wouldn't be a good idea for weeks and weeks what you know what 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 happened with the madness about antigen tests like like what, why uniquely in the western world like were, were antigen tests bad in ireland but good everywhere else you know like th- these are questions which need to be answered you know and and they need to be answered simply because it's a process of public accountability. You know, like, I mean, even if... Like, there are all those big, big questions that you were talking to, to Jack about, quite rightly, you know, about the education system, about the healthcare system, about commuting and remote work, and there's lots of social questions to be, to be asked. That's not what this inquiry really should focus on. This inquiry just needs to present a public narrative, right? If you have something as big as this in any society... That society has to produce an official narrative, right? Even regiments in wars, right, produce an official narrative of this is, this is what we did in the, you know, the Ardennes campaign. This is how it worked. This is what went wrong. This is what went right. Why? Because actually, you know, whatever chance you have, of being prepared for the next time, you, you've no chance at all if you don't have a map. You don't have something saying, okay, th- this, is, this is how it worked. And, and, you know, so even apart from the kind of concrete lessons, it's, it's a fundamental issue of democracy. You know, we, we de-democratized the handling of the pandemic. Governments became very, well, at, at once too strong in that, you know, it was top-down, <clears throat> diktat, but also incredibly weak, right, in that it was essentially doing what it was told by Enfet. That's a really serious democratic deficit, and and it's up to the eructus, right? I don't want um, a judge. I don't want uh, you know a, a, a foreign consultant doing. You know, it, 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 for all its faults and failures, we elect a, an eructus to do this. That's that's the constitutional duty lies with the eructus to uh, exert accountability, right? and if the electorate isn't capable of doing this then we're in a really really serious democratic problem you know uh, and, and if they, if 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 they're going to politicize it to such an extent that it becomes a show trial then shame on them and but that's also something we need to know right it's very important for us as a society if if the answer is you can go through one of the biggest crises uh, in the post war history of the state and our elected parliament is incapable of conducting any exercise in accountability. I mean, that would be something worth knowing, you know. But I, I, I'm slightly more optimistic because actually, when you get into the business of it, um, it actually doesn't become as, as, as Jack was saying. I think it's not about good guys and bad guys, right? It's it's about what happened and why it happened. And, and uh, surely, be to God, there's a capacity to to lay down a basic narrative, even the banking inquiry flawed as it is, is actually useful, right? It does lay down a narrative, right? It does tell us some stuff, which is, which is important. I think this could be better than the banking inquiry for those reasons that we don't have the, the white hats and the black hats and we don't have, you know, a kind of binary here. We, we, we just need a public accounting of what happened.
0: This is a politics podcast, so we're interested in the politics of things in general. And in many countries partisan politics was at the heart of the debate over how COVID should be dealt with. And in in many, or certainly in some countries, that had a very negative impact on the ability of that society to deal with the threat which COVID posed. And that seemed to be, Jack, much less of the case here. There seemed to be quite a lot of consensus. There was a lot of buy-in into things like the vaccines. There was a lot of buy-in to the, you know, the very serious restrictions which were imposed on people's liberties. But it does seem to be a kind of a paradox in relation to some of the things Finton was saying there—that you had all that, and you didn't really have the mass protests against restrictions that you've seen in in other countries, or political parties coming out in a strong way against them. But yet, you did seem to have this deep dist- distrust on the part of the authorities, which is what led to particularly long lockdowns. The instant the question of masks, both the both the issue of masks, which Finton refers to, and the issue of antigens, both seem to be rooted in a distrust on the part of the medical authorities. That uh, that the population would use these things properly. Um, so there's a. It just seems to be. This it tells us something about the way um, power and society works in Ireland.
2: Yeah, and and I think that those those two examples are interesting ones, and they speak to a lot of kind of themes within the pandemic. If you'll indulge me for a moment, um, one of which is the kind of paternalism. That is inherent, perhaps, in the medical profession, uh, and and to maybe even a greater extent within public health. You know, which which studies and tries to evaluate and predict and cater for how people interact with uh, medicine and medical threats at a kind of population level, as opposed to an individual level, um, and you know that makes it, I think, particularly susceptible to fears about interventions which may be mishandled by a small kind of subset of the of the population and that can kind of you know um transmogrify into 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 a big big issue you know so i think that like They're always led by or they want the cover of, you know, uh, a large body of evidence over something like mask wearing, which just didn't exist in the early days of the pandemic, even though the horse sense was accurate, which is that, of course, wearing masks is going to help stop this thing. But they they, they kind of held back and they said, no, we want we want total certainty flowing from research, which empirically shows this is the case. And, you know, that was damaging. But but but
0: But there was also a suspicion. That this would give people a sense so that, that, of carte that people blanche, them. they would then think that they exactly. could, you know, all, break all the rules because they had yeah, a mask. Yeah, we on. all
2: remember these, the, like the, the messaging and looking back, you know, to to when they actually changed their advice on masks. It was still shot through with this kind of paternalistic message. You have Tony Holland saying things like, "No, they're not. A, they're not a magic shield. They're not a magic shield." And of course, I don't think that like most people really felt that they were a magic shield you know and we had these these kind of really kind of didactic videos on you know how to how to take it off without touching it and you know is there a risk that people will touch the mask and, and spread the virus arising from that you know and then you have the issue of antigen which is like just I think the most fascinating study in the kind of paradynamics of the of the the pandemic in Ireland because it became this kind of political cause celebre during 2021 in particular as we kind of came out of that uh, that super long lockdown that followed the third wave. the political system took it up Stephen Donnelly in particular. Took it up and was its champion to the extent that he actually set up uh, a group to study how it would um, be used and implemented, which existed outside the kind of healthcare establishment. It existed outside the HSE, whose responsibility it would be for implementing these things. It existed outside NEFIT, whose responsibility it is for formulating policy that goes to government, uh, and yet was by and large for much of the year. entirely unsuccessful in getting this launched to any to any appreciable degree um, and that showed i think the the ingrained power that exists within the he- healthcare establishment um versus the 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 fleeting power of the political system you know because they can effectively say look go off make up your policy commission your external report but good luck getting that implemented when we actually who we actually are the nuts and bolts people on the ground and we're the ones who are going to run you know, the rollout of this. So I think that's a fascinating little, little sub episode that, that illuminates a great deal about Ireland's pandemic. And, and there's a, if you'll allow me a short plug, there's a great deal on this in the book and a great deal of new mater- material showing how that evolved over time. And, um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I think Vincent said, and it, it's, it's absolutely true is that like, even though we came through this, uh, you know, as I say, middle of the pack, not a disaster, not a burning dumpster fire in terms of, you know, the the, the human toll of the pandemic. Uh, It does raise really profound questions about how democratic the approach was, uh, what the state is of political power within the state and how that compares to what we saw, which was a great expression of the power of of the state itself, but not necessarily the political system. And you talk to people on Netflix, you talk to people within government, and I think there is a wide acknowledgement that the way that we went about formulating pandemic policy was absolutely insane. It was, you know, the, the boffins go into a room um, there's a drumbeat over weeks of what they might decide on. Huge amounts of punditry and speculation. They go into rooms separate from the political system, uh, who don't really have an input into it. They formulate the advice. It then comes out, usually leaked by one side or the other, uh, almost immediately. And the political system is asked to react to that. Now, like as I've said before on this podcast, that that's a mad way of 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 deciding. You know, any form of policy. It's a mad way of deciding. You know, what kind of bus you buy for the for the for the public transport fleet. It's a a totally mad way of deciding something as all-encompassing as pandemic policy, you know, which was the be-all and end-all, the centre of the news agenda, the centre of the political and policy agenda for the guts of two years. So, you know, that that model, I think, um, needs to be more closely interrogated. And that democratic deficit that definitely existed uh, has to be closely interrogated. And I think Fintan is right. The degree to which the political system can reassert its agency over, you know, the inquiry process and the degree to which the whip hand is held by the political system, I think, is a kind of acid test for that. Um, Because I don't think it's one of these things that we can just kind of Kick to touch to an expert inquiry. I think that that probably is what the government wants to do. They probably want something um, like the uh, the Scally report after a cervical check or something even to, to, to go back to the financial crisis again. Remember the Nyborg report or the the Honahan report. You know something that exists um, behind closed doors produces something that is kind of fungible and useful and all the rest of it. But I think it's important that there is this kind of cathartic moment that you know there is a, a public reckoning in some way shape or form, and that the Arctus, that the doll, and the 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 Shannon are are involved in that. Um, I think that the the government, if they try not to have that part of it, I think they'll risk a backlash coming through the Oireachtas itself. At least I hope that that there'll be a backlash coming through the Oireachtas itself and that you might see... Committees, already extant committees, uh, which have a legitimate claim over parts, over vigilating parts of the response, like the Health Committee or a Public Accounts Committee, stepping forward and saying, "Well, look, we're going to do a module on this. We're going to do this. We're going to reassert. because I think it is it is important to have that that rebalancing now because it's an important point for for politics, an important point for you know assessing how politics and the state interact going forward.
0: Last question to you, Fenton. We we were talking recently about your your book, your recent. Uh, memoir: Stroke, uh, stroke history of modern Ireland, and the Ireland of 2022, which Jack describes there, uh, sort of slightly chaotic on the front end, highly paternalistic on the back, uh, quite cohesive and yet also and also quite quiescent and obedient. Uh, it reminds me of the Ireland you described in 1958. In some sense, <laughs> you can sort of see a through line there, can't you? <laughs>
1: You, you you definitely can, you know, um, uh, like in one bit of the story is very good, right? So, so uh, you know, we're both old enough to remember Bertie Ahern lamenting the, 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 the collapse of social capital in Ireland, you know, in, in the Celtic Tiger years and set up a commission on social capital. I don't know if you remember that one, you know, which produced a report about how, you know, cohesion in Irish society was falling apart and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, of course, it turned out to be untrue, right? So so social cohesion uh, was actually completely remarkable, you know, both in terms of the early days of the pandemic, just in terms of, you know, voluntary effort. You know, every community in Ireland, you know, where you had the local football club, the local GAA club, the lo- you know, the local flower arranging society, whatever, you know, going around to older people in the community and saying, what do you need? What can we do? What, you know have you got somebody to do your shopping you know just that basic kind of stuff was absolutely wonderful uh, and and also then in terms of uh, like the wild irish are gone You're like you know this notion of you know oh you know we're we're a sort of wild roguish kind of nation well you know no actually we're very obedient you know we're, we but but, but actually that, that was not a bad thing it was a real sense of actually people the vast majority of people understood uh, even though our, the authorities and the healthcare authorities thought we were idiots um understood that, you know, there, there was mutual interest, like the enlightened self-interest really kicked in. People understood that if I follow the rules, uh, it's good for me and it's good for for my neighbours, it's good for my family, it's good for my granny. You know, that, that sense of kind of cooperation actually was, was very, very strong and, and very important. Um, the bad side of it was that, yes, absolutely, we, 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 the other thing we still have is this sort of authoritarian... System top down. I mean, you could see the NFET as just kind of replacing the, you know, the the the, the annual meeting of the bishops in Manouche or something, you know, where where things were decided. And by the way, the maleness of the, very much of the public face of this is something we haven't talked about. Like Jesus, I mean, at least one thing we should never ever do again, you know, is is have a public emergency in which time after time after time you've got five or six blokes in suits standing up telling people, you know, what, what what's going on and what to do and completely ignoring, you know, the, the worries that pregnant women had, completely ignoring, quest, you know, just really simple questions like, you know, g- giving birth in the pandemic, like what, what would that be like? Treating, you know, partners, male partners, as if they were sort of awkward alien visitors who were going to bring a virus into, into a hospital rather than as part of the system. I mean, there's a whole set of questions right around gender, uh, which, which were completely 1950s. It was completely as if, you know, we, we just had these 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 middle-aged men in suits, you know, issuing diktats and and, and issuing pastoral letters, you know. Um, so they're, 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 I think for both and good and bad reasons, a lot of this stuff seemed very familiar, you know. And if we are going to um, <clears throat> come out of it with anything positive, I think it's, first of all, to reinforce that good side of it, right? To actually think about, why was it that in some ways the society was vastly better than those in charge thought it was going to be? Um, much more intelligent, much more cooperative, much more, uh, you know, driven by this, this sense of, of uh, an enlightened understanding that, you know, we were all in this together. How do you reinforce that? How do you, how do you reinforce those kind of social strengths? Uh, but but also um, the, the bad side of it, right? Which is which is you know is our only way of dealing with emergencies to to have blokes in a room, um, you know, and and you know I think Jack described it brilliantly this sort of weird process whereby you know what what they've decided is leaked, um, uh, and then the political system has to react to that, and then all of us in the media are saying, oh, but NFET has already decided that you should be doing this, you know taking complete agency out of the entire political system. And actually, this is up to our politicians, actually. You know, just at a really basic level, I, I completely agree with Jack, you know. The political system, if it has any sense of self-worth, self-esteem, you know, has to reestablish itself as... Uh, you know, an important part of our democracy. You know, <laughs> This is the way we're supposed to do things. And, and it has to do this by showing that it's capable of conducting a serious, fair-minded, non-partisan inquiry or evaluation of, of, of what happened throughout this whole process. And if it were able to produce that in a way that actually was, was, was intelligent, um, fair-minded, and accessible to the public, I think it would go some way towards re-establishing the idea that we're supposed to be a Republican democracy.
0: I think we can all agree with that. I think we'd also all agree that we also need really well-written books that inform us about the uh, about the subject. What was the name of that book again, Jack? Pandemonium,
2: out late April, but available to pre-order okay. now.
0: Okay, so keep an eye out for that. Listen, we will leave it there for today. Thanks so much to Finton and to Jack for joining us. Thanks to Declan Conlon, our producer. We're going to be back very soon. Remember, you can mail us at politicspodcast at com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.